This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and read verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 6 verses 3 and 4 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. One of the consequences of false teaching is what Paul calls evil suspicions. This is the only place in the New Testament where this particular word is used. And there's no hidden meanings here. It's an evil conjecture or supposition. It's just exactly what it sounds like. The same way we would use the word suspicion today. How these ideas can creep into our minds and cause us to change our perspective about someone or something or some event. It creates a bias within us, right? And I think it's especially true today, given with given how much information we're bombarded with on a daily basis, whether it be social media, email, TV, uh, you know, daily reports of lawbreakers and corrupt officials, and we can just begin to distrust everybody. And there's numerous examples in Scripture of folks like this who came to be just almost paranoid of everything. And so let's take an extreme example in Saul of Tarsus, not Saul of Tarsus, excuse me, King Saul of the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 18, 18. Saul, he arrived at a place where he just assumed the worst about everything that David ever did, which is especially sad given what we know of David in Scripture, how he loved Saul, and he loved the members of Saul's family. Jonathan, Saul's son, heir apparent, was his best friend, and Saul gave one of his daughters, his Michal, um, um, to David in marriage. So David loved these people, and he loved Saul, despite the fact that Saul wanted to kill him because God revealed to Saul that his kingdom would not stand, and so uh, it later became apparent David was going to succeed him, and this is this became too much for Saul to bear. At least we should say he uh, let it be. But he hated David. In First Samuel eighteen eighteen, David said to Saul, "Whom, uh, who am I, and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to to the king?" So David had this humble position toward toward Saul, and he saw it as a great honor to be associated with him. And yet, in that same chapter in verse 29, as Saul realizes um, that that he's not going to be able to thwart, thwart David. You know, there's a lot of different plots that Saul uses. And without getting into much detail in this particular context, he wanted to try and use the Philistines to, to kill David when he's offering his daughter in marriage. He says, David says, what's the price? And I'm paraphrasing, of course, but, you know, you know basically Saul says, bring me proof that you've killed all these Philistines. And so um, David not only does this, but he kills twice as many. And when Saul, when he returns to Saul, it says that in verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Now, again, David was a humble servant who loved Saul and his family. Yet Saul was bent on killing David. Why is that? 
And if, if you just keep reading, it says that Saul knew that the Lord was with David. Yeah, because Saul was making himself the enemy of the Lord, he was he was also the enemy of David. So it's it's very counterintuitive. You would think, you know, okay, a reasonable person would say, well, God's God is with David. You know, he must, and God isn't with people who are living in sin, but he's obviously blessing David and, and has chosen David to succeed me. And so what I'm saying is that Paul could have, excuse me, Saul could have chosen the path of humility and accepted it. I think even thrived under David because David loved Saul so much and, and his son, Jonathan. In fact, later David makes a pact with Jonathan before David becomes a fugitive. And Jonathan asks David to promise that he will take care of his posterity whenever it is that God allows him to ascend to the throne. And David does so. And then later in David's life, we see him actually fulfill that promise to Mephibosheth. But at any rate, the the path that Saul chose was one of paranoia and fear and evil suspicion, just thinking the worst about David. David has to have my worst uh, interest at, at heart uh, because he's going to replace me. All right, And this is how Scripture puts it, that Saul knew that the Lord was with David. And so Saul, because he was an enemy of the Lord, had to be an enemy of David. He was an enemy of truth. It didn't have to be like that. Again, Saul's heart was set on this destructive course in, to, to assume the worst. Uh, so all Saul could see was evil. His fear blinded him. His pride blinded him. His selfishness blinded him. And he just wouldn't allow himself to see the the good man that David was and, and the alternative to, to being king. In 1 Samuel 20, verse 31, it says, For as long as Saul told his son Jonathan, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And, you know, as we just see things kind of unspiral here, not unspiral, but I guess spiral downward, spiral out of control, Saul, in his thinking the worst of David, having these evil suspicions and then intentions to hurt him, he he becomes a traitor to himself, really. He's, he only hurts himself, and he becomes a danger to his family. And then the same way our evil suspicions will make us strike out at those who are dearest to us, right? This isn't a way to behave toward Jonathan or to Michal or uh, to David, his best servant. And so evil suspicions contain this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. The more we suspect, the more reasons we find to suspect. And the more we distrust and the more reasons we find to distrust. Until every creak in the floor becomes a burglar. And notice that all of this coincides in Saul's life. All of this coincides with his decision to abandon God's will. And so he grows increasingly suspicious of David, who who is trying to do God's will, and is, and is actually being submissive to Saul. He grows suspicious of David to the point of paranoia. And this was sin. And it was it was one of many sins related to Saul's rejection of, of God's will. Uh, but this is something we see and want to seize upon. First Samuel twenty six eighteen, um, 
he said, David said, why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What, what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Right. So at one point when Saul catches up to him, David is able to have this exchange with him. I think on more than one occasion, if memory serves, but here he's, you know, he's asking what, what is it that I've done? What wrong have I done to you that you're trying to hunt me down and and kill me. Well, David hadn't done anything, right? And in fact, he had spared Saul's life. He had been a faithful servant while he was in the palace. He had, uh, you know, been a a, a great commander uh, and won many victories for Saul. And and even when he was a fugitive, he spared Saul's life more than once. But this doesn't seem to matter to someone who is just eat up with evil suspicions. And so thinking the worst of our loved ones or our neighbors is unjust and, and often, you know, it's it, it, it can pass within us un, unnoticed, um, our own cynicism. And again, we want to think about how this happens. When we look at Saul, and again, he's an extreme case, but we can nevertheless be given to the same. And you think about Paul's words at the beginning that we started with in First Timothy 6, 3, and 4. And, you know, he starts there by saying, if anyone advocates or teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, in other words, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness. And then he goes on in verse 4 to list these char- characteristics about, you know, he's interested in controversy and quarrels. He just wants to fight. And, and then that's where we read our evil suspicions, right? And so it's the same thing with, with Saul, Right, he's he's rejected the truth. He's rejected God's will. He's rejected the truth about God and and the truth about David. And so now, the only alternative then is to be continually given to his own will and desires and and these evil suspicions that he has. And we can fall into the same trap. And so we have to be actively fighting our evil suspicions. One of the ways we give ourselves to evil suspicions is in thinking mostly in terms of other people's sins against me rather than my sin against God. So this is one of the ways we start down this this path of you know, kind of just perpetually having these evil suspicions, you know, thinking the worst about people, being a cynic, however, however you want to put it, is we primarily think about other people's sins in general or interpersonally, sins, sins that they may have committed against us, rather than our own sin and our own lives that we sin against God. You know, the times that Saul was willing to briefly practice some self-examination, he acknowledges that he isn't doing right by David. King Lear is quoted as saying you know, in Shakespeare, I am more sinned against than sinning right and so that kind of captures the idea that we're that we see illustrated in Saul or rather King Lear illustrates what we see in Saul is that he was uh, eat up with what other people were doing what troubled him most was not his own sin that's what should have troubled him most Saul that is uh, but his other, but other people's wrongdoing against him, or in this case, we should say it, uh, the the perceived wrongdoing against him, because here it wasn't even legit. And but at any rate, when that's our focus, we just become consumed with it in the way that Saul was. It was all he ever talked about, all he ever talked about, with his family, 
uh, with his colleagues. You know, how, how are we going to get David? What can you do to help me thwart David? How can we trap him? Um, we become quick to speak and slow to listen. And, and we're quick to write off and, and slow to bear with and quick to suspect and slow to forgive. First Thessalonians 5, 14 and 15. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. There's a lot of instruction there, of course, but none of it, notice, none of it involves thinking the worst of people. Right? And Paul says, you know, there's there's going to be idle, there's going to be people who are faint-hearted, there's going to be people who are weak. you got to be patient with everyone, just as God has been patient with you, I believe is what's implied. And don't pay back anyone evil for evil. There's varying issues within the church, and God expects all of his people to be fair, to be patient, to be kind and loving toward all. And we know this loving disposition that, that we're supposed to have is captured in 1 Corinthians 13. And, and those first several verses, eight verses or so, but let me single out verses four through seven where that says, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or, or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rather rejoices with the truth. And then notice, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now think about that and think about the prevailing spirit in our society and what it has become. Right? If someone disagrees with you, they should be villainized. They, should, they don't deserve any respect. They don't even deserve to have a fair hearing. You know, this is what we see. This is, you know, all the time on the news and I think even in, you know, uh, in, in, in entertainment shows and things like like this that um, you just you assume the worst about X or Y or Z group, but God's people are called to be different. You know, I can't help but think that the Good Samaritan, in his interaction with the 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 innkeeper, and you know how and really how that whole parable. Up to that point, you know, Jesus is singling out of this individual who would have been the target of cynicism and, you know, uh, uh, mocking and, you know, the Jews would have saw Samaritan as, you know, less less than a person, if not less than a person, something close to that, right? They just, they couldn't stand him. And yet Jesus holds this individual up in, in the parable as, as an example. And... In and towards the end of the parable, specifically, you know, as I think about his exchange with an innkeeper, when he brings the injured man there, you know, he tells him, you know, ask him rather, you know, to, to take care of him and here's some money and whatever more you spend, I'll, I'll pay you back uh, whenever I, I return. And so you have this individual who's who's doing good and is trying to look after this man who's been harmed and, and is loving him as Jesus says he's an example of loving someone but what he's doing here is he is he's entrusting uh, this responsibility and money to uh, this innkeeper he's doing it all in good faith and, and thinking the best that okay this guy's going to be honest when I when I return 
And I think therein is an example for us. True love is not suspicious. Right? Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians, it doesn't think evil. It thinketh no evil. It doesn't assume the worst. It expects what is good and puts the best um, construction on the motives and deeds of, of others. Right? So it doesn't take the meanest interpretation of everything. Right, it gives the benefit of the doubt. It gives, it shows people good faith, like the good Samaritan inn, and that innkeeper. I like this quote. Um, I'm not sure who said it, but it, the quote is: "Suspicion remembers what never happened. Suspicion remembers what never happened, and that so succinctly, I think, describes our extreme example of Saul." Um, that he had really no real reason to think the way that he thought. Uh, but he was so eat up with his own will, and because he had rejected God's will, he it was, it was, he was living in a different reality altogether, right? And, and so when we fall prey to that, the same will be true for us. And so we shouldn't take the meanest interpretation of what someone says. You know, we assume the reasonable, assume the reasonable best of, of everybody. You know, obviously we're to be, you know, shrewd as serpent, yet gentle as doves, as, as Jesus tells us. So it doesn't mean that we're just like these Pollyannish kind of people with our head in the sand. We're just naive, and you know, we, um, you know, we, we're not discerning in any way, but. Um, you know that that's not that's not what I'm talking about. But we we try to assume the best in people. We should, until we have a reason not to, right? We we want we would want people to do that for us, right? We we want people to interpret us in a gracious way, right? And, and part of we know that the law hinges on you know doing to others as you would have them do to you. That that's the whole law and commandments. And loving your neighbor as yourself. Um, so, so doesn't that include, you know, giving someone the benefit of the doubt, uh, assuming the reasonable best of them? I remember sending an email a number of years ago to a relative just to check on them, and you know, I just asked about life in general and how work was going because uh, I knew they were looking for work and kind of having a hard time. They were, you know, in a transition period and just moved to a new place and. Anyway, it was just hard, and so I, uh, you know, was just checking in on them, and their response was anger. Uh, they thought I was mocking them for not having a job by by asking if they had found anything, uh, and it was just, you know, it just came as a, a complete surprise to me, and I was taken aback. And so, I'm sure you you know folks who have you know maybe read your text or your email that you sent and they just went off on you when you didn't mean what you said in a spiteful way, not even in the slightest, but somehow it got construed to be that. And maybe you've been on the other end of it. Maybe someone sent you a message in good faith somehow um, and you read it and you, you went off on that, that person um, only to find that again, your friend was genuinely inquiring about you or your well being and your job or job status or whatever. Uh, so why do we do that? Why, why, why are people so eager to take offense? I think part of the answer is pride, and you know, his, maybe a history with 
that particular individual, you know, that we've had some good disagreement in the past or, uh, you know, uh, something that where, where there were harsh words spoken and uh, feelings were hurt and, and maybe there's some, you know, kind of residual effects of that coming through and they're kind of coloring our perspective now of, you know, five, 10 years later or whatever of what that person is, is saying to us. And, and again, we've slammed head on against what we read in first Corinthians 13, that love is not resentful. It does. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. And so we need to remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5 eight. And while being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no, no threats. You remember that. And even if even if that person is being nasty uh, to you or kind of, you know, trying to fire a shot below the waterline, being passive aggressive or mocking you or whatever, in, you know, some subtle way, you know, you won't you, you won't be offended when you keep this humble position uh, I mean, you'll acknowledge within yourself that they're they're in the wrong, and maybe your feelings will be hurt, but you won't lash out, and you won't, um, you know, uh, uh, try to fight fire with fire, because you'll you'll remember Jesus died for me, and I, you know, I am I am a sinner, and even though he was reviled, again, he wasn't reviled in return, and so that's that's the example I need to follow. So I need to strive and be as forbearing and forgiving. As he is, and, and that'll go a long way, I think, in in helping us not take offense. Whether even even when someone is intending to to offense, even when someone's trying to hurt our feelings, you know, let alone when they're just sending a you know a genuine benign message and not trying to be passive aggressive at all. All right, so we. We should strive to maintain that forbearing and forgiving spirit. And, and evidently, this was not the trend. This was not the case that was going on in, in Corinth, where members were suing each other. Christians were suing each other in First Corinthians chapter 6. So they had ample opportunity to keep a record of wrongs, and they certainly seized them. But we don't have to follow their example. Hatred and angerness and bitterness, they're all cut from the same cloth, and I, I think they all spring from... Uh, pride, ultimately, that, you know, I, I deserve better, and who are you to treat me this way, and uh, so on and so forth. Well, it's, you know, that the, the individual who's being ugly to you certainly is is wrong, but their sin doesn't justify yours. Their sin doesn't justify you repaying them in kind. Um, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much we think someone else has wronged us or even how much they've actually wronged us. There's no place for Bitterness. Um, and if someone does offer criticism or has a concern about sin, we should be willing to examine ourselves in that case. And again, the, the times that Saul was willing to briefly do that, practice a little self-examination, be humble for just a moment, he acknowledges that he isn't doing right by David. He acknowledges, at least for a brief moment of time, that David is righteous and that he has no that Saul has no reason to be chasing after him or, or thinking the terrible things and saying the terrible things about him that he has. But because he wouldn't relinquish his selfishness, he wouldn't relinquish his evil suspicions. 
Matthew 7, 3, 5, Jesus says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so this again points up to our need to check check ourselves, check our own eyes and see see those logs. We should never uh, gossip or post comments passively, aggressively on- online. Um, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, we would want someone to approach us in, in love. We would want them to limit their judgments to what they could clearly perceive and leave the secret sins of others to their creator. So we want to practice good self-examination, be honest and, and objective. And, and we know we, that's what we want to do for ourselves. And, and we want to imitate God's judgment. And again, as we're thinking in terms of treating others the way we want to be treated, we know that that's how we would want to be evaluated. We fairly and fair and objective and uh, in, in love. We would want someone to come to us out of, out of concern for our soul. And so that's how we should respond to others. Uh, Suspicion, malice, and bitterness won't allow for any of that, though. And, you know, we might begin to think, well, what about people who want to take advantage of us? You know, for instance, someone who maybe visits the congregation and, you know, they're a career criminal or something, but they know that Christians and churches have a tendency to help uh, anybody who comes in monetarily or whatever the case may be, whatever help they need, buy them a tank of gas, maybe buy them a mule or something like that. And they may give this yarn about, uh, you know, being a member of the church and just trying to get back on their feet and they'll come back to services next week and, or they just moved to the area or something like this. And it's all, it all turns out to be a lie in the end. They don't come back. You know, they haven't really moved there. They, you know, and it turns out they're just, they, they ghost you, you know, what do you do about, well, what about that? Okay. Well, well, when that's a fair question, but let's think about what Jesus said to say and do love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven for he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So, uh, again, Jesus doesn't tell us to just bury your head in the sand and kind of take this naive approach to life. He, he expects us to use common sense and, and to be discerning. But he tells us very plainly to love your enemies and pray for those who spitefully use you. And he tells you, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Right? Again, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. And... We can be discerning, but we should still shine our lights in a cynical world by bearing all things and hoping all things and, and believe all, believing all things. I like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, It would be better to be deceived a hundred times than to live a life of suspicion. You know, I, I know of members of many different local churches who have opened their hearts and their wallets when from time to time a stranger comes in or and you know is asking for money and 
after Bible class or something like this. And again, they promise to return or, um, you know, follow up in some way or call. And, and then, you know, they just end up ghosting us. And yet, you know, these brethren continue to, to open their hearts and their, their wallets. You know, because they want to keep that tender heart. They don't want to be given to cynicism, even though they may, in the back of their minds, know it's likely that this person is not legit. Um, it, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter. It's better to keep a tender heart, even though con artists are going to count on you having that tender heart. We can guard against long-term abuse, I think, by... Close, you know, paying close attention to recipients and asking questions, and and uh, you know, drop drop in on them if they're local, and just check in and see how they're doing. You know, there's a lot of human judgment that comes into play, and it's imperfect, but you know, we can still keep the principle of Second Thessalonians three ten while at the same time maintaining a tender heart. Second Thessalonians three ten says that if a man shall not work, neither let him let him eat. Um, and we have to consider, I think, the example that we're leaving to our, our kids. Yeah, the one preacher said that he looked back on his life with regret on some regarding some incidents because, um, even though he has recognized what he you know he that he did something wrong and that he repented of it. He feels like damage was still done. And, and he mentioned specifically an occasion wherein he and his son were walking through Grand Central Station in New York. And they come across this presumably homeless person who's drunk and, you know, begging for change. And he looks at his son. The preacher looks at his son who's with him and and uh, he sees compassion in his face. And the boy starts to stop and. You know, he's startled by this, and it's something brand new to him. He's never seen this before. Um, and so he's moved by it, and he, you know, wants to stop and, and say something. Uh, but the preacher said, I just I, I just put my arm, my arm on his shoulder and just said something like, why no, or something like that, and then I moved him on. And he said, I wish I had let him express his compassion or ask his questions or whatever he was going to do, even if it meant later he was going to be disillusioned and will grow calloused and hardened to others' problems soon enough on our own without any assistance from our parents. And so let's try to keep a tender heart and teach our children to do the same so that they won't be given to evil suspicions. Because care for one another and for all people should be the mark of a disciple. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So what do our families and our friends observe and our co-workers observe in us? Do they see a forgiving, loving people? Do they see a Facebook feed that's free from quick judgments and rude posts and cynicism and evil suspicions? Or do they see the same evil suspicions and distrust and division that they encounter everywhere else in the world. Whether they're examining our lives or they come to visit a local church where we're a member, what do they, what do they see? How I am treated and how I am being empowered or how I am being understood and seen 
and known as should not be my primary concern. Evil suspicions, bitterness, and a believer's life represent a spiritual failure. I'm to live by God's principles. And one vital principle that is demonstrated is in God's grace that I am to forgive others that trespass against me. And that doesn't mean hush up sin or try to pretend that it didn't happen or hide guilt under the guise of love. When Peter says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, his point is is that when you love other people, you desire to remedy their sin. That's what he means by covering a multitude of sins. In other words, hate will do the opposite. Hate will try to um, discover and broadcast and gloat and and bring out uh, the worst of people that, you know, that we just knew was always there. Bitterness will push us to be malicious and slandering. And so even if I am aware of another shortcomings, maybe that they genuinely have a sin that's in, in their life, do I <clears throat> allow that to... Um, do I use that information in such a way to, to help them or do I just hold on to it and try to pass it on to many, as many people as I can? Well, that should be behind me. Being uh, slanderous and malicious and cynical and, and envious and hated by others and hating one another, Titus 3.3, 3, that should all be behind me. Christ wants me to come out of the shadows of suspicion. I'm to be unstained by the world, James 1.27. And this is one of the ways, one of the many ways that the world can stain us with toxic, unfounded, evil suspicions of people that we shouldn't have. I appreciate you tuning in.